let y'all find your seats and we're going to go, where are you going? You just got here and now you're leaving? Oh my goodness. You, what's going on here, man? Yeah. All right. All right. Let me pray for us and then we're going to get rolling. Uh, go ahead and find your seat. We're going to pray. Father, I thank you that we have the chance to be able to look at your word tonight. God, I pray for all the things that we have going on, whether it's here uh, with our Mission Journey kids or if it's our youth over at HLG and the night of worship they have over there for Spiritual Emphasis, Emphasis Week. God, I pray that you would move mightily uh, over there on campus with those students, um, with the college students, with the youth that are there. Uh, God, we pray that tonight would be a seminal moment for several students. And as is my custom, I would just ask for you to pray for me in our time here tonight, that as we're looking at 1 John, that what I say would be clear, be accurate, and be beneficial. If you would, just pray for me. Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that as we are looking at our text tonight, God, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us comprehend what it is that our brother John has written for our benefit um, and for our progress and sanctification. God, I pray that we will take away from it exactly what it is that you would have us to learn and that, Lord, that you would help me communicate that clearly. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are in 1 John chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John 2. We are going to be sitting in verses 12 through 17. Um, and then I am going to give us a little bit of a recap on where we were last week um, because we really need to get a big running start to see where this material fits into this. Okay. So if you have one of the outlines that I've given you um, for all the stuff that we have for the, the semester breakdown of where we are in 1 John, where we are tonight is in a dynamic digression about the church and the world. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But where we really find ourselves is right on the heels of verses 7 through 11, which is where we see the second test from John. And that second test was concerning love. And I told y'all last week that this was ramping up towards chapter 2, verse 15, which is what we're going to see tonight. And that this is connected to love, but it's a little bit separate of an issue, right? So we had in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3 through 6, was the test of morality or obedience. Last week was verses 7 through 11, which was the test of love. And we're going to be expanding on some of that, but it's really a digression about the church and then a digression about the world. And so we'll talk about those things here tonight. Yeah? So that's where we are. If you want more information, go watch last night or last week. Go listen to it. We'll be good to go. Where we're heading tonight is going to be in verses 12 through 17. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of verses 12 through 14. And we're going to talk about these three different truths that we see for the one church, but is specified in three groups. We'll talk about that. Um, and then we're going to talk about that discussion about the world. Um, we could have had this conversation back in chapter 2, verse 8. Don't worry about it. We're going to do it now because back in chapter 2, verse, I'm sorry, not 2 8, 2 2, when we talked about propitiation, I wanted to spend more time there, but we're going to have this conversation about the world tonight. And then we're going to get to the first command of 1 John. And there's only 10 in all of 1 John, and this is the first one, a chapter and a half in. So we're going to have building to it, and then we'll talk about that command after that. Word? That's where we're heading. All right. So let us read 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17. This is what John writes for us. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then you, does y'all have like a little dash, like this is explaining of everything that's in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so... We've already talked about how we are in the middle of this digression about love. 
And we're in this digression about the church, and then we're going to talk about the world. So let's just talk about verses 12, 13, and 14. Number one, does it look goofy on your page? Right? Does it have margins in there? I'll, this is where one of the two places in 1 John, I am clearly going to tell you, I don't actually know what's going on for some of this. I really don't. Um, most scholars are divided as to what is actually going on here. This clearly became like the basis of like an early church hymn, but it's unclear whether or not John wrote it himself here, and this is the first time we see it, whether John is adapting something else that was already in circulation and he is using it here, or if there's something else that's going on. But what we do know is that this is one of those like early church kind of hymnic creedal types of encouragements to one another, it's, it's odd. I just got to tell you, it's odd. Um, I don't know exactly where this comes from. However, the point that John makes, I think, is actually quite clear. And so let's talk about that. And so what I am saying is in verses 12 through 14, there are three specific truths that are given to three specific groups. Pause on that for a moment. You tell me, who are the three specific groups that you see in verses 12 through 14? Little children, fathers, and the young men. Which, by the way, isn't that weird that he addresses each one twice and he goes, little children, fathers, young men? Again, I don't know why. And most commentators, if they address it at all, it's like, yeah, that's weird, ain't it? Moving on. Like, that's how they address it, because it doesn't really affect the meaning, but it's one of those things that, like, for the curious minds, I, if you're really curious about this and you've got a question about it, by all means, ask it, but I'm probably not going to have an answer for you, okay? Now, here's what I want us to see. I believe that these three groups, and I do believe they are three different groups, they are referencing spiritual maturity, not chronological age. He is not literally writing to little children and men who are old enough to be fathers, and young men who are not old enough to be fathers. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what he's talking about here is that these three groups actually represent the entire church. Yeah? Are you tracking with me? All right, let me just pause right there. Has anyone else ever read this, this section, 12 through 14, and thought that it referred to a different kind of group? Okay, there are at least two other answers, and I will tell them to you now. Over and over, John will call his audience in 1 John, beloved or my dear children. So it is possible that in verse 12 and later at the end of verse 13, when he says children, he is addressing the entire church, and then he subdivides the church as fathers and young men. So he's not addressing three groups, he's addressing one church that's subdivided into two. That's one option. Another option is he is addressing those who are very young, those who are adolescent, and those who are old. I don't find that one to be all that uh, appealing. It doesn't answer some of the other questions that I feel like naturally come up as we see what John actually writes. So I do think the most natural way to read it is that he is referencing spiritual maturity, not chronological age. Okay? Does that make sense? And so what I'm telling y'all all this for is to say, I believe that in these places where it is not like a real matter of doctrine, that I trust that I can give you the options and that the Holy Spirit will work that out with you. I don't have to have all the answers. If the Lord impresses it upon you that you really want to go deeper and you really want to study it, I'll give you all the resources I have and I will turn you loose and trust whatever the Lord is going to do in your heart. Okay? I do feel that is the role of a teacher. And so I'm just going to tell you that real clearly. Yeah? All right. So those are the three groups. What are the three truths? Let me give them to you right here. And I'm going to basically condense what he says to children in verse 12 and at the end of verse 13 into this. He tells them that their sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name, or on account of Jesus' name. The number one truth that he addresses for the entire church with these three different groups, they should know that their sins are forgiven because of Jesus and his name, his work, right? So whenever we talk about Jesus' name, that's not just, oh, well, you spell it a very particular way and that's what he's really getting at. Like, no, he's talking about the person and work of Christ. 
The reason this is important is because I think John is saying you're saved by Jesus, no other thing. Not this other knowledge that you could get from these proto-gnostics, right? There's not this other thing that actually provides salvation. It's only because of Jesus. And that's kind of the baseline for the young believers. You've got to know that your sins are forgiven. Yeah? That's the first truth. The second truth is you truly know the Father. Again, this proto-gnostic idea of, oh, I know God and I'm enlightened, but then John lays out a very simple test of, hey, do you love your brother or do you hate him? And you're like, oh, well, I don't like that dude. Well, then you don't know the Father, right? So if he is writing to the fathers and he is saying, you have known him who is from the beginning, I think what he's getting at there is that he is saying, you truly do know God the Father. And when you truly do know God the Father, that implies that you understand his saving work and the person of Christ as well. Does that make sense? And then the third truth is that we can have victory through faith. Are you seeing that? And that's really speaking to the young men. And we'll, we'll address them in a little more particular ways. There's one truth of you can have victory, but then he's addressing these young men there in verse 13 and then later in 14, and he says three things to them specifically in 14. He says, you are strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You see how those three things combined of having this strength of faith, this having the Word abiding in them and how them overcoming the evil one. You see how that relates to having victory in Jesus? Does that make sense to you? So at the end of the day, John is writing to the church. He addresses three specific groups, young believers, adolescent believers, and the fathers of the faith, right? Those guys that are older and more mature. And he says, all three of you, and this is where I think we should combine all this, I don't think it is improper to say that the fathers are not strong and that they have not overcome the evil one and that they don't have the Word of God abiding in them. I don't think that's proper, right? I think you should read that the fathers have matriculated from all of those other areas. And I also think that because of having their sins forgiven in Jesus' name as the children, that they have in fact overcome the evil one. Right? They might be growing in this abiding in the Word of God, and they might be growing in experiencing this strength of their faith, but I don't think it's necessarily true to say, well, that's only for the young men and the fathers. Are you seeing what's going on there? Here's why all this is important. When we put all three of these together, remember what John is doing in 1 John. He is trying to provide assurance of salvation, that your faith is genuine. And so what he highlights is, do you know Jesus? Has your, have your sins truly been forgiven? Well, if you trust in Jesus, then yes. And as a result of that, you are growing in your faith, you're having victory, and that you truly know Him who is from the beginning. Does that make sense? All right, let me pause right there. That's 12 through 14. Questions, comments, other thoughts? Like I said, I may not be able to answer the question, but I think you should ask it nonetheless. Ed, you chewing on something over there? Nope. Okay. Didn't know if you were repositioning to project your voice. All right. So you see what's going on with 12 through 14. We're good with that? All right. I will tell you there are going to be very few times that I'm going to reference 12 through 14 for the rest of the book. It's just, it doesn't fit into like that really seminal explanation or portions of John's argument. The next section will, but this one just really doesn't. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. I think what that does show is, this is kind of an odd thing. Like, it does seem like it just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? So let's talk about that here in a moment. Next thing we want to talk about is verse 15. So our homework includes reading the section, stop, go back to the beginning of that chapter, read the whole chapter, stop, go back to chapter one, verse one, and read the entire book in one shot. We need to be doing that. We need to be looking over to the discussion questions. And one of the other pieces of homework you have is to memorize. And we are also memorizing not only 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we're also memorizing 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
there we go. You've now heard it. I want to hear from at least three of y'all, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. You tell me. Hit me with it. Who wants to go? Christine, you going to be brave and go first? Excellent. Somebody else want to go? Millie. Love not the world. King James? Word. All right, Mac. Have at it. There you go. All right, how many of y'all feel comfortable that you could probably do it right now if you had to? How many of you are like, give me next week? Okay. We're going to recap next week this section. So guess what? They're, these three folks who went are off the hook. And I'm going to be looking at the rest of y'all. Okay? All right? 1 John 3, or I'm sorry, 1 John 2.15. It has in there a really cool word, ha-cosmos. What word do we get from the word cosmos? Cosmos, right? With the, and by the way, in Greek, those omicrons, those O's, those are pronounced as A's, cosmos, right? Ha cosmos, right? So this is where we get the word for the world. Now, uh, which by the way, if you've never made the connection of why we call it cosmetology or cosmology, which one is it? Cosmology is the one for cosmetology. There you go. That word comes from cosmos because it's beauty. Beauty and creation, right? See how that works? Learned you something there, didn't I? Anyway, so this word means the world. Now, here's the question I need to ask you. What does the world mean? Who wants to take a stab at it? Somebody give me like the easy answer. You know that's like the low-hanging fruit. It's always, it's always a trick. You're right. It's always a trick. Anything created? Okay. Okay. Anything that is outside of the creator, any part of creation could rightly be understood as the world. I like you. I like it, Ed? The ways of the flesh. Okay. Do you have anything that kind of springs to mind that makes that connection for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my translation has desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, but that word, whenever I translate it, is lust. Because that's what it comes down to, all right? So we've got creation, we've got the lusts of the world. What else? What else might this mean? Somebody look at 1 John 2, 2 for me. Rich? You wasn't going to talk tonight, but hey, you're in it now. Yeah. Well, when I think of it, I think of in this context, the world is what the kingdom of God is not. Okay. Okay, so the world is whatever the kingdom of God is not. So you have the kingdom of God, and there's like a clear delineation between it and everything else, that everything else will be considered the world. Okay, I like that. Anybody else want to take another stab? By looking at 1 John 2, 2 specifically. When we talked about propitiation, we could have talked about the world then, but I wanted to focus on propitiation because I knew we'd talk about it, the world tonight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Satan has a lot of say over what happens on the earth. Okay, so the world could be another name for sin. So really hitting on what Ed was saying, tying it into sinful desires, lust, right? Okay, so in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, what John tells us is that he is, speaking of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is our propitiation. And not only the propitiation for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's a question 
Does what John mean by the world, ha cosmos, same, same phrase, does he mean the exact same thing in 2.2 as he does in 2.15? So I see some heads shaking and I would say, yeah, you're right. John's use is varied. He means very different things by saying the exact same words. We keep asking the question, who is we, right? Let me ask the question differently, what is the world? There are going to be places where it's going to be different. So I'm going to throw up a chart right here. I'm going to give you a diagram. I'm going to give you some time to write it down here in a second. Ed, you got something you want to say before we get there? Okay, so since Satan is the prince of this world, he has a lot of influence, and we talk about sin, and this is his domain, I think that fits fairly well with anything that is not in the kingdom of God, right? All right, so here's the chart. It's going to be a little hard to see it because of the black backgrounds. I think what John is using this word as is at least in five different ways. He can use it in at least five different ways. I think at the very central, smallest area that he can talk about the world, he can talk about God's people, right? Let me give you an example. In John 17, quoting Jesus, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. And so I think that those people who have been transferred from the world and are here now, they are plucked out of the world and they are put into a new existence. And I didn't say it this way, but what Rich was saying is that's the kingdom of God. I think that's proper, okay? Right outside of that, you have all the people of the earth. And I think this is where John 3.16 comes in. For God so loved the world. Does John mean that Jesus, when he said that, is that Jesus loved the rivers and the mountains and those trees and that grub in the dirt, is that why he sent Jesus? No, he's not talking about creation as such. He's talking about all the people on earth. That's the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. There, it is true that Jesus' sacrifice and his propitiation is enough to cover all people on earth, but there requires a response. And it's applied in a very particular way to his people. Yes? So, I think that, that much is, is clear to me. And then the next two are actually very easy. When you start talking about the earth, yeah, that's the world. But whenever you start looking into all sorts of Old Testament text and New Testament text, that reference the creation of the world, we're not just talking about like the earth. We're also talking about other planets. We're also talking about the sun and the moon, right? So clearly it goes beyond just our atmosphere. And if that's true, I think whenever we look at those stars, you start seeing we're talking about the universe. But then you get to that outer ring. And this is where I think this is the big one. And this is the one that John most frequently uses is we're talking about this sinful nature of the broken world. This is where we start talking about Ed saying the desires or the lusts of the eyes and of the flesh. Sin, Satan's domain. In fact, one of the things that we're going to see a little bit later on, uh, John's going to talk about the desires of the flesh. There are two words for body in Greek. One is soma, which is just body. could be translated as flesh. And that's normally like positive to neutral. Just a body, right? Then you have this word sarks, and sarks is negative. That's the word he uses. The desires of the sarks, right? It even sounds kind of sinister, right? So does this make sense whenever we start talking about the world? This is critical because the command in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, as three of us have already demonstrated is, hey, don't love the world. If we were to import our understanding of John 3.16 into 1 John 2.15, that's going to get us in a lot of trouble, is it not? Because John tells us to not love the thing that God loves so much that he sent his son to die for it. How does that work? 
So clearly, he doesn't mean the same thing by ha-cosmos, by the world. It's a different thing that he's talking about. Are y'all clear with that? Clear as mud? Sue, you chewing on anything? Agree, disagree? Processing. In process, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I try to provide is a different perspective on what is taught. Yes. Yeah. How do we localize and contextualize that general command that's out there that we're so familiar with? What am I supposed to do with it? Is that, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That, I think that is one, the function of the church collectively that we bring together. You're not listening to my wisdom and saying, oh, well, Lee said so, so we have at it. In fact, we're, we're literally going to address that in chapter four, right? Right, we're going to address that very thing, and we're going to talk about that in next week when we talk about that you've been giving an anointing that is from the Holy Spirit, and so you need no teacher. We'll have to talk about that, but collectively, we work this out with God's wisdom because we're all imbued by His Spirit, and it's not always easy to work that out. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, part of my prayer thing is asking for mentors. And you stop and realize that the 10-year-old needs a mentor, the 20-year-old needs a mentor, the 70-year-old needs a mentor. Mm-hmm. Because we're all at different stages in, yep. in our lives. Absolutely. We've got a discussion question about that very thing. I'm coming to you, and you better have a great answer. You're going to have one. You're going to have one. All right, so let me just kind of synthesize what you just said there. We need to be able to read clearly what the commands say, and we need to apply it correctly. If we make the wrong observations from the text, our interpretation will be wrong, and our application doesn't stand a chance of being right, right? And so what we're after is trying to see it all in process. Paul? Yep, and so Paul's comment there is that if you misunderstand what the world means here and you apply it backwards, you can get to chapter 2, verse 2 and say, oh, he is our propitiation, and not only the propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus loves everyone, wouldn't you agree? Like, yeah, see, he's the propitiation for all people. We're all saved. It's universalism. That very well may be true if... John clearly does not have a different meaning of the world in mind, okay? And so we have to be able to make those right observations. That's why I am forcing us to ask dumb questions like, who is we? Yeah? Who is we? Who is us? What is the world? Yeah? All right, other comments? Christine? Yes. What is the world in chapter 2, verse 15? I think it is that sinful nature of the broken world. And the reason I think I know that is because of what is following in verse 16 and 17. The lust of the flesh, the pride of, or the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're talking about not good things there. And so I don't think that we're talking about the universe or the earth in like a materialistic sense. I think he's talking about not just people, but what they do. And which, by the way, this is also why I think this chart is helpful. You notice that God's people are not removed from the world. Yeah? We're, we're right in the middle of it. We're distinct from it. But we inhabit that part of the world that is encompassed by the sinful nature of a broken world. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're removing from that or getting removed from it. John, you've had your hand up a couple times.
Okay. If you're not pursuing faith in Christ and you're pursuing faith in the world or its promises or what it says it can provide, then you're missing it. That was your comment. 100%. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. We're about to talk about that just next. Absolutely. All right. I want to take all the time that we need on this because I think this is a really big concept because this can also be translated into those other abstract nouns like love. What does John mean when he talks about love as a thing that we're supposed to do? Gary. The universal opportunity to whom? All people on earth, right? Keep going. But there's an opportunity that's given, but not everyone receives. So there's a distinction between God's people who have responded to that opportunity for grace and those who have not. That's where I think I can draw a very clear distinction between God's people and everyone else on the earth. Yes? I want to read you one more section. It's like four verses long, but I want you to listen to this section from Jesus with this in mind. Jesus speaking in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, he says this, If the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. Do you think Jesus is talking about the universe hating you? Or the earth hating you? Probably not even that sinful nature of the broken world. That influences the people who are hating you, right? So, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, John, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world or the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept, if they kept my word, they also will keep yours. You see how he's playing the levels there about what he means in a very clear way about what the world is, even distant and distinct from John 3.16 and 1 John 2.2 and from 1 John 2.15? Y'all seeing that? So clearly, John's use of this word is varied. Whenever we come to this word, we're going to have to pause and we have to figure out exactly what he means. Because if we mess that up, we make the wrong observation, our interpretation will be off and our application will also be off. Yeah? Word. Tuck's ready to move on. Anybody else? Excellent. The rest of this is going to be a whole lot quicker. I promise you. So then John issues one command for everyone. Verses 12 through 14, there's three different groups, one church. He's telling them three different truths. Here he issues the first command. And this is an actual imperative. This is him commanding them to do something. Let's pause for a second. Remember, the idea of love and the test of love began back in chapter 7, verse 11, or 7 through 11. Chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. Say it again. Then we have this digression about how the church is supposed to love one another. What I think is going on is that John is actually moving from encouragement to now he's about to issue a command and there's actual warning attached to it. Okay? He's not buttering them up, but he is affectionately talking to them and warning them about something that is coming, right? And this is the first of only 10 commands in 1 John, and here is the command. Do not love the world or the things of or from or in the world. That's it. That's the command. Don't love the world or the things associated with it. And this is where I think the command, the way I'm going to rephrase it is, we must reject world love. You don't love the world. Worldly love in the sense of not just the world at whatever level of all people and then the earth and the universe and the sinful things that are pervasive in the world, like that's not what our object of our affection is supposed to be. Yes? And here's what I want you to see about this. To love the world is to not love the Father. In fact, this is exactly what Sue's comment was last week when we talked about what, how do we define hate 
And Sue immediately said, not loving. Well, then when we flip that around and say, well, what is the definition of loving the Father? Well, that means that we reject the things that are going to be contrary to what God has told us to love. And that specifically here is the world, the sinful things of the world and the desires that come along with it. We have to reject that. And here's the thing. This is an uncompromising command, is it not? Find the wiggle room of where you can get out from underneath this command for me. Don't love the world or the things of it. I don't think there's a whole lot of room there. I want to look at two sections here. I've already read uh, that first, or excuse me, John 15, 18 through 20 of um, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But this is what Jesus says in two other places. In Matthew and in Luke, it's basically the same thing, so I'll just combine them. Ma- uh, Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one, or you, rather, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon. Money. You cannot serve God and insert whatever. Can't do it. And he reaches for this really powerful symbol of money and wealth. And he says, you can't love God and that. You can't. Matthew and Luke basically say the same thing. James chapter 4, verse 4, this is what James says. You adulterous people, y'all keep bickering, you keep fighting, you can't control your tongues, you don't have any wisdom that is from above, you keep searching for wisdom here down below and you keep messing it up. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James kind of goes a little bit harder in the paint on the negative side. But make no mistake, this is an uncompromising command. Yeah? This is why we must understand what it is that John is commanding us not to love is not the people of the earth. He absolutely makes clear you must love them. But you cannot get down with all the sinful nature and desires that pervade this world. That's where he's making that distinction, okay? And then lastly, this is what I would say. This is exactly what John was saying. Our hearts must, they have to be, they need to be inclined towards the redemptive works of God, not whatever the world tells us. That is the clear story of Scripture. I think that's what you were articulating back there, John. Yeah. All right. Let me pause right there. Any comments or questions? Fairly simple and straightforward command. Yeah. Hard to do. Hard to do, but we're going to talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agape. Uh, it is the agape word. So in chapter 2, verse what? 8, is that whenever he first issues the command to, to love? Two ten. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, the one who loves agapaon as opposed to agapete, which is the command form. So it's the same word, agape. So there's not really a, a clear distinction of phileo, which is this uh, brotherly kind of love, or eros, this erotic kind of love. He, he doesn't use any of the, He's using agapete. He's using agape form of love, right? And so there's no distinction in that kind of love from chapter 2, verse 10, and the kind of love that we have here in 2.15. It's the same love. Don't love the world that way. Yep. That's a good question. Because I actually, that was the example I used earlier, and I said we're going to have to ask that question about love at times, too. All right, other questions? All right, let me read something from our brother, Cyprian, from the 3rd century. He was the Archbishop of uh, Carthage, right? Uh, Old, dead, North African dude. This is what he says. Since the world hates the Christian, why do you love that which hates you? Since the world hates the Christian, why do you love that which hates you? Great question. Why do you love that which hates you? Why do you not rather follow Christ who both redeemed you and loves you? 
Great question, Cyprian. I don't know why we keep doing it. What do you think? Rich? Mm -hmm. Satan is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Sin. That's why. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're about to talk about next. Any other questions about verse 15, the actual command? All right. So let's read verse 15, the last half, and verse 16 together. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and now he's explaining what's in the world, the desires or the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. That phrase for the pride of life is tooth, uh, uh, biu, the things pertaining to life. Does anyone have another translation other than the pride of life? Go ahead. Possession. The pride of possessions. You see how those work with the things that are associated with your living, the way that you actually have sustenance and material things. Those are the things pertaining to life. So, the desires of the flesh, the desires of your eyes, and the pride of possessions, the pride of life. Okay? We're going to talk about that here in a bit. So, there is... Two reasons why John is going to tell us why we should reject this world love. I'm going to give you the first one, and there's two underpinnings that I'm going to give you. So I just want to prepare you for that. So here's the first reason why we should reject world love. is because the love for the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. That They can't go together. Right? You can only serve one master. You will either love the one and hate the other or the other way around. There's no third option. Right? So it's incompatible, but it's incompatible on two different levels. So here's the first one. The love that we have for God, it requires that we accept that God loves us and that comes through us understanding what He's done for us through Jesus. Young men, I write to you because you are strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Fathers, you know Him who has been from the beginning, but little children, what does He tell them? Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus' name. The way that we understand love is that we have to see it in action for us through Christ. And when that happens, that changes the nature of love. Does that sound familiar in 1 John? That's the previous section. I'm not giving you an old command, it's a new one. I'm not giving you a new command, it's an old one. Right? He's telling them that because when Jesus shows up and He loves us, it changes the way we understand love. Yeah? Love for the world and love for the Father are incompatible. Here's the second reason why this is true. There can be no other rivals to our love if our love for God is going to be genuine. See what I'm saying? Not only is the love of the world and the love of the Father incompatible, but like, okay, let's downplay the world, okay? That seems like a big thing. What about your interest in making sure as a parent that your children have every opportunity to succeed academically? So I'm going to do everything I can. Doesn't matter what I got to do. Lie, cheat, steal, pay somebody off to get them in the right school. That literally happened all over California. Y'all remember that about four or five years ago? Like all those celebrities were like paying off UC Berkeley and UCLA to get their kids in on scholarships for water polo that they never played or whatever. Oh, it doesn't matter. What was it, homegirl from Family Matters? Full House? Yeah. Okay, it's not academics. What about sports? I'm going to make sure that my child has every opportunity to have a well-formed understanding of their body and life, and they get these opportunities. And we don't have those here, so we got to travel every single weekend to go do this stuff. I'm telling you, that is incompatible. That is a rival for your love for God. It is. Your job, your marriage, your kids... Your position in the church, anything can be one of these things that can become a rival. And so what John says is, hey, it's incompatible. You can't do it. And here's the last thing that I would say. Those three areas of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those are really addressing our appetites, 
our affections and ambitions. I did not come up with that. Up with that. that is too clever for me. That is Danny Aiken. Take it up with him, okay? Another way you could think about those three areas is this. I found somebody else who said this. So again, don't come at me. Your base desires, your false values, and your egoism. Those three things are what permeate the world. And whenever you are saturated by that, you will not be able to love God rightly. Why? Because it's a rival to God. And now the love of the Father is not in you. You seeing that? All right, now that I've stepped on some toes, take a breath. All right, that's the first reason that we're supposed to reject world love. But then we get to verse 17. Let's read verse 17 together. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So here's the second reason why we're supposed to reject world love. is because the world is transient and God is everlasting. The world is falling apart under your feet. Why would you love the thing that is crumbling underneath you? It is passing away. It just is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers, Paul says. The, anoint, uh, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they are not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal in the world as though they had no dealings with it. Wow, Paul, those sound like some good things. He's like, yeah. Why is it that you don't need to treat all those good things as ultimate? For the present form of this world is passing away. The next letter we have to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. We look to the things that uh, not, we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Guys, why would you want to go down with this ship anyway? The world is doomed. You get that, right? It is doomed. There is going to be a dissolving of this earth. That's 2 Peter and Jude. It's going to melt away. The Lord is going to uncreate it, and He's going to recreate something new. So why would you love those things that necessarily are going to dissipate eventually? Those desires are no longer going to remain because they're going to go away. And you know what else is going along with it? Everyone who loves those things. The world is transient. God is everlasting. And only the one who does the will of God remains. And what then would be the will of God? Trust Him. Love Him. Seek His will. Not your own. Reject the world and its ways and pursue Him. Does that make sense? Uh, Danny Aiken, the guy that I took those three points of ambition, affections, and... Uh, Ambition, that's the one. Uh, the guy I took that from, this is what he says. The darkness was on the run in chapter 2, verse 8. The world is on the run in chapter 2, verse 17. Light and that which will last forever has shown up in Jesus Christ. What remains? What endures? The answer is the one doing the will of God and the one who abides forever. That's why love of the world and love of the Father are incompatible. They just, they just don't go together. Oil and water go. Cool? All right. Any questions about that? All right, let me hit you with a final thought. Who knows who Demos is? If you go look in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, Paul rattles off a list of about 10 dudes who were in close fellowship with him and with Luke. They were working together. They were in Asia Minor. They're on their way to Macedonia. He's on his way to Rome. And Paul is like, this dude, he's one of the guys, Demos. My boy, right? And then you turn around however long after that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Let me just read that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. I want you to listen to what Paul says about Demos here. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Speaking of Timothy, Hey, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Why? Verse 10, For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here's the application. You really want the application. Like, this seems kind of hard to nail down. Here it is. 
It is absolutely possible for you as a Christian to love the things in the world to such a degree that they will overshadow your love for God. That is absolutely possible. It happens to Demos. For a time, that seemed to be what happened to Mark. That is what is going to happen to the group that we're going to look at next week in verses 18 all the way through 27. They were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. But guess what? They left. These false teachers, they left. Why? I'm sure some of this is at play. Here's my point. If you are not in the Word of God and intentionally trying to get to the point where you can understand what God has done for you, you're never going to understand how much He loves you. And when you fail to see how much He loves you, does that positively or negatively affect your love for Him? Whatever those things are that are good in our life, you do realize that it's just a hair's breadth away from those going from being good to being like an absolute deterrent to anything good. A lot of times whenever I have college students who will tell me they're applying for jobs, applications a lot of times will ask them, hey, what are some of your weaknesses? And they're like, ah, what do I do? Like, how do I tell someone what my weakness is without tanking my opportunity to like get the job? And the thing I always tell them is, talk about a strength gone awry. I am incredibly organized. I love organization. I am super organized. But you know what? I can get kind of bossy if people aren't doing it my way. I am someone who is incredibly punctual. I am on time, always. I'm early. And the moment someone else shows up, three seconds after we start, I just, I can't handle it. That's a weakness. All of those good things that the Lord has told you to do with your children, to do to provide for your family, to do to be a good witness for Jesus outside of these walls, those can very easily become, well, now that's the thing that I'm holding up as the most important. I need to make sure I have a good reputation, and so I need people to see me serving out in the world. I need to make sure my children have every opportunity, and so I'm going to be at everything, for everything, and I'm going to take care of it all for them. You see what I'm saying? You are not far away from being a Demos. Neither am I. And that's because sin is so alluring. The desires of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Man, we live in that world. It's like asking a fish how the water, water is. And they're like, what? How's the culture? How is sin around you? And you're like, I don't, I don't really have any. Oh, yeah, you do, man. You're just as wet as that fish and you don't know it. Right? We've got to be introspective so that we don't have this be our story. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, I've got some discussion questions. We've got about 10 minutes. We're going to run through some of them. And the first one is for Sue. Yeah? So be thinking. Um, any questions before we get to discussion questions? Anything I can clarify from 12 through 17? Sue says she's ready. So in what ways can a less spiritually mature person teach someone who is more spiritually mature? How can we do that? Is that possible? Maybe that's a better question. Is it possible for someone who is less spiritually mature to teach someone who is more spiritually mature? Tuck's nodding along. Rich is nodding along. Sue, what you got? Yep. Excellent. I like that. So we don't see the innocence of moving from the heart. Uh, little kids in their faith, and then even just as they develop, can ask really precise questions that cut through our assumptions and actually get to the heart of the issue. Okay, This is actually 
coming around to you, Jenny. This is exactly what Matthew 5 is talking, or excuse me, 18, 5 through 6 is talking about. Jesus walks in on his boys having an argument. And this is what Jesus says. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of the little ones to believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great big old rock tied around that dude's neck and thrown in the water. It'd be better for them for that to happen than to cause this dude to sin. And I think this is where the old preacher analogy of you're supposed to have a childlike faith, not a childish faith. Yes? Jenny. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But others it'll impact. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. No, 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 yeah. No, no, yeah, I think, so if we were to condense that, I think everything you said there is, I'm absolutely tracking with you. If I were to condense that, I would say your comment about not everyone is maturing at the same rate and no one has ever arrived at perfect maturity, right? That You're not gonna reach that point in this life, right? We don't believe in a completed sanctification like some Christian uh, theologians think. Like that's... I don't find that compelling at all. And if that's true, then that means all of us are learning. And just because someone is young and they express something that you may have already learned, well, they might be expressing something that someone who is back in the back, who is a mature Christian, has never even considered, and they can easily be taught that, right? And I think another point that whenever I hear you explain that, that really sits in my mind is like, you do realize that just because you've been in church for 50 years doesn't mean you're mature as anything. You do know that, right? Physical proximity to someone who is mature helps. It doesn't make you more mature. I mean, the author of Hebrews and Paul, both at different points, they say, hey, y'all should be eating meat right now, but let's get back to this milk, because that's what you need. I shouldn't have to return to these base doctrines. We should have progressed. So like, there clearly is a maturity that we can observe, but not everyone's there at the same rate. And if that's true, then we can teach each other. Clay. I was about to ask you if you had a story about some kid in your PE class teaching somebody yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like a dog on a bone, baby. And I'm like, well, it's not that, it's not that simple. You see, there's, you know, 
but it is that simple, right? <laughs> and so by golly, we went across the street and talked to him, and uh, I, I'm having this, like, this moment, like, I'm like, oh, no, is she going to have that exact conversation that we had in the truck that said, well, my dad says you're going in, you know, but <laughs> she did not. And so we, we uh, talked to him and uh, uh, Sharon, we, we uh, invited him to church, and boy, she was waiting for him in church on that next Sunday. Yeah. And they didn't come. And uh, I said, it's okay. And she was you were obedient. Yeah. Yeah. I I think one place I want to insert this here because it may not come back around. Um, Anthony didn't talk about this in his last sermon uh, on the Word of God, but whenever Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. When you think about the average lifespan of somebody from the first century AD, what do you think the average lifespan was, cardiologist? 45 to 50. So someone who's midlife is how old? Some 20, 25-year-old dude. How old do you think Timothy was? This cat may have been 17, 18 years old. Would he be the little children? Would he be the young men? Would he be the father? Sounds like a father to me at 18 years old, at 20 years old, at 22. So age and chronological age has something to do with it. Certainly not everything, especially the longer this goes on. I've been in church for 60 years. Cool. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Ah, don't really do that. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll talk about something else. Ed, you had a comment? Yeah. Yep. You learn from the younger ones. All right, let's move on to our next question while we get a little bit of time. You got anything you want to throw out there quickly? It's refreshing to see whenever young people are teaching older people stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, here's, I think, a question I do want us to discuss even though we're over time. At what point do you think it's appropriate to tell a Christian that they have overcome the evil one? Because John, in verse 14, he says... Young men, you've overcome the evil one. He says it to the same group in verse 13. He says, you have overcome the evil one. John. Well, there's spiritual salvation Yeah, so in spiritual salvation and eternity, you will have one. Okay. Good luck. If you're doing it on your own, you're doing it on your own. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit who fights one for you, but also with you, right? By the way, the word, does anyone have another translation other than overcome in verse 13 and 14, talking about the young men? Mine says overcome. Conquered. Boom. Won your battle. That word is nikao. That's the verb. If it's the noun, it's Nike. You know what word or brand we get from Nike? Nike. Nike, the shoes. Swoosh, Jordan. Conquered, overcome, won a battle. So you're telling me some young cat can have overcome the Satan, the evil one? You betcha. I don't know. And personally, this is where I would also confess, I don't know exactly how I would quantify that. But what I would say is it's possible. I would say it is possible whenever you have the Holy Spirit within you. If you're doing it on your own, yeah, <laughs> good luck. It ain't going to happen, fella. But with the Holy Spirit, yeah, totally different ballgame. All right, here's the last thing. What are some of the things in the world that it promises to provide that it just simply can't deliver on? Huh? Joy. Joy. Ed says joy. Somebody else? Peace. Peace. What about the... I'm sorry? Happiness. 
happiness. Somebody want to rattle off a little Galatians 5.20? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are things that are wrought by the Spirit. You might have something that approximates it, but if it's not Spirit-empowered, it ain't from the Spirit, and frankly, it's not going to last. So here's the point that I want to make to that. Whatever it is that the world's promising that it can give you and it can't, why do we love those things? It's transient. It's crumbling beneath your feet. It's incompatible. But man, we sure love it, don't we? Say again. We're shining. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's first John. I'm not going to give the last question because we're already over time. So, homework. Keep reading. Keep memorizing. First John 1, 9 and 2, 15. Next week, we will look at uh, the third test. I already have the discussion questions. I'm not going to hand them out here. I will tell you, we are going to encounter the word antichristos, antichrist. Here's what I'm telling you. Unless you are taking it from 1 John here in chapter 2 and then chapter 4, you come at me with some other definition, I'm going to blow you up. Okay? So what I'm telling you is, look at what John says the Antichrist is. And we start the discussion there. Okay? That's what we're going to be looking at next week. So that is basically verses 18 through 27 of chapter 2. Yeah? All right, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, I thank you that we have recorded for us um, the words of life and that we have your word here with us. God, I thank you for the, what, uh, the content of what our brother John has written for us. I pray that you would help us apply this into our lives. God, I pray that we would not be a demos, that we would not be someone who is in love with this present world and desert you. God, I pray that you would help us identify those areas in our lives that are conflicting and competing for love. Um, that rightly belongs to you. Father, I pray that you would help us identify that and fight it well. Lord, we love you, and we need you to help us in that effort. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, if you got other questions, I'll be up here.